What is up, Venue Church? It's Pastor Peter Haas from Substance Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Man, it's been a while since I've been up in Airdrie. And of course, Nate Puccini, my main man, was just with you guys. He, he said he loved his time with you. And I miss you guys, Pastors Corey and Aaron. You guys are both truly the best. And, and guess what, Venue? Today, you guys are going to do something super fun. You guys are going to tap into the Substance Church video feed. In fact, you're going to join campuses from all across across North America, from Canada all the way down to our Substance Campus in Mexico, okay? So uh, when I give you guys a shout out in this message, you guys have to shout me back as if I was preaching there live. Does that make sense? And by the way, happy three years, Venue Church. I love you guys, and thanks for joining us at church this weekend. I'm Pastor Peter Haas, and today we have churches joining us from all over the world. Come on, we got churches in Alberta, Canada, all the way to our downtown Minneapolis campus. Can we just welcome them, everybody? Would you guys join me in welcoming you to church? We're just so glad you're here today, and you're actually going to be glad you are here, because we're actually starting a brand new teaching series called Tough Questions About Faith and the Bible. I sounded like I was from New York. Tough questions. Now, really, the idea behind this series is really just, we want to hit some tough questions about uh, Christianity. You know, over the years, I've had a lot of people come up to me and just say, you know, Pastor Peter, how do you really know the Bible has no errors in it? You know, I mean, that sounds like a pretty strong claim. I mean, Pastor Peter, why would you believe that, right? How, or, or how about this? How do we really know God exists? Uh, like, what are some arguments for the existence of God? And really, so the idea behind the series is to hit some of those uh, questions head on. And keep in mind, uh, this is going to be an ongoing series. This is not a sequential series, okay? So about 12 times a year, what I want to do uh, here at our church is just hit some of these tough questions head on and then archive it. And then hopefully over the years, we'll have an archive of maybe like 60 or, or 70 toughest questions that people have asked me over the years. And, and then you can just share it with your friends. And here's, here's why I want to do this though, okay? Because a lot of people, they're afraid to ask the hard questions. They're actually afraid to explore their doubts when I actually believe that it really, if you want to find real faith, it comes by exploring your doubts, not by avoiding them. And yet so many people are afraid to ask tough questions because they think it's sacrilegious. Uh, but I actually believe, no, the opposite is true. Avoiding tough questions is sacrilegious. God wants you to ask tough questions. God can handle your tough questions. In fact, I believe the more intellectually honest we get, the more we peel back the layers, Christianity wins every time. And so, in fact, the questions that disturb us the most are usually the places where God is longing to speak to us the most. And so, uh, today, I want to dive right into um, kind of the most fundamental tough question. It's this. How do we know the Bible is reliable? How do we know? I mean, really? I mean, come on. We know that way back in the history of Scripture, I mean, people used to have, you know, the Bible was like translated by hand and it was done, copied by hand. I mean, come on, how do we know that the medieval monks that, that copied the Bible for us, how do we know they didn't just add a whole bunch of things over the years? How many of you know that things didn't get lost in translation or watered down? And even more than that, how do we even know who, who decided what books to even include in the Bible? I mean, come on, like just people just decide I like that book, but not that book and then just eliminate it. And I mean, how did that even happen? And so we're going to have fun today. We're going to go there today. It's going to be awesome. 
And you know, you know, again, uh, so let me get specific, okay? So like uh, right around Easter time, I'm, I like watching TV. And of course, around Easter time, they, on the Discovery Channel, they always show all these documentaries about the Bible. And it's really weird because half of these documentaries are not even made by scholars. They're just made by some dude with a video studio. You know what I'm saying? And, and of course, every single year, somebody ends up seeing, there's a couple documentaries that are just absolutely crazy, like crazy dumb. There's no academic foundations to them. And yet they're on the Bible. And, and so every year somebody comes up to me, hey, Pastor Peter, I just saw a documentary that there's like a conspiracy about lost gospels, that there's like a lost gospel of Thomas and there's a lost gospel of Judas. Is that true? You know, and of course, I know the exact documentary these people are always talking about because I've watched them. And of course, uh, unfortunately, a lot of these documentaries, they're not even based on any sort of scholarship. And this one documentary talked about a conspiracy to hide certain doctrines to control the narrative. And it kind of reminded me, it kind of reminded me of when I was a little kid. I remember being at the grocery store with my mom and there was all those like um, old newspapers. They don't make them anymore, but Weekly World News or the Inquirer. Do you guys remember those? Okay, and I remember as a little kid, I, I saw the one newspaper and I freaked out because of a certain headline, and here it is, that there were 10 more commandments found to the, you know, the 10 commandments that Moses, like, must have forgot about 11 through 20. And I remember, like, mom, what happened? They didn't tell me this in Sunday school. And, and of course, you see young people, if you don't know this, Weekly World News was the authentic original fake news. None of this modern fake news, right? I never thought I would say authentic original fake in one sentence, but you know, so in the olden days, that was like fake news, the tabloids. And, but as I remember like as a kid, I was like, what? There were 20 commandments? Guess what number 17 was? Thy Vikings shall not win a Super Bowl. <laughs> Sorry, was that too soon? Was that too soon? That was just a... I didn't say it, okay? It was, it's fake news. Chill, chill, okay? No, seriously, okay, coming back to, so like it, it reminded me of that. You see, guess what? There's all sorts of people that make false claims about things that aren't true. And what irritated me about this Discovery Channel documentary was that it was honest to God trying to argue that there was some sort of ancient conspiracy to hide the lost gospels. It was like the Da Vinci Code, you know what I'm saying? And the narrator literally said this, okay? And I want to address this, okay, because this is, this same statement is made by a lot of cult groups over the years, and you're going to, you're going to hear this. I want to talk about this, and, and the, the narrator in this documentary literally said, up until the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there were actually more than 80 equally loved gospels, not four, 80. But at this ancient council of Nicaea, they viciously eliminated all of them except for four. And ever since, they've been forcing everyone to agree. Okay, time out, time out. Okay, that is completely false. There was no, com there was no political conspiracy theory. It was not at all like Da Vinci Code. Yes, there was, in fact, a few ancient books in 325 AD. One of them was the Gospel of Thomas. There was also a Gospel, a Gospel of Barnabas. But they weren't lost. Let me call them what they really were. They were thrown away. They were thrown away. Why? 
Why were they thrown away at the Council of Nicaea? Because none of them were actually written by the apostles whose name was attached to it, okay? In other words, Thomas did not write the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, Thomas was dead for a good hundred years before that book was written. How do we know? Well, there's actually dozens of reasons. There's entire books written on why they were thrown away. It's because everybody knew in those days they were written by cult groups who didn't like what the original four Gospels said, and so they wrote their own little weird versions of the gospels and then ascribed it to a, a, an apostle who was long dead. And of course we know for dozens of reasons, heck, a lot of these books, these, these false gospels, they used all sorts of words that weren't even created until hundreds of years after Christ. Okay. Let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, did you know that the word blog did not exist until the year 1999? We know that um, there's, there's all sorts of evidence to prove that, right? Like, so uh, young people who weren't alive before then. Um, up until then, we used to call them web logs, web logs. And then in 1999, somebody just shortened it. They said it was cute blog. You know what I'm saying? So, so the, there was no existence of the word blog before 1999. There were no vloggers, you know, in 1998. Okay. All of that was after. In fact, it's almost hard to imagine that this word did not exist, but there was no word for selfie. Isn't that, I mean, like, how did we ever live without the word selfie? I mean, like, my kids were like, how did people like take, when they took the camera and turned it around and took pictures, how did, what did they call that? We didn't because it was too expensive to develop film. <laughs> Nobody would waste film like that. You know what I'm saying? And it was like... There was no selfie. Okay, nobody said selfie, right? Uh, nobody said, did you read the tweet? Unless you were like crazy and talking to birds. Nobody said, did you see the TikTok? Nobody, okay, the word staycation did not exist until the word, until the year 2003, okay? And neither did all sorts of under, other wonderful words like bromance, <laughs> cyber stock, or fandom. None of those words existed 20 years ago. Okay, does anybody remember when the pound sign started being called a hashtag? Does anybody remember that? It was like, I remember one time telling my, my daughters, what does pound sign this mean? And they're like, I'm on, OMG dad, like what the heck is a pound sign? It's called hashtag. And, or remember when emojis used to be called emoticons? Does anybody remember that? OMG dad, ew, you're getting so old. You know, let me tell you something, young people, okay? Your kids are going to make so much fun of you because it's going to be twice as worse for you. Oh, man, it comes around, young people. Hashtag poop emoji. <laughs> You're going to know what I'm saying. Just you wait. It comes around. I'm just saying. Okay, my point is this, okay? There are experts who specialize in the creation of words when they existed, when they didn't. They're called etymologists. I think you might confuse that with entomologists, which is the study of bugs. Um, but I, I think etymology is the study of the word origins, okay? And, and when etymologists study even just the early writings, these ancient documents, they can tell when these were written based on when words were invented, okay? So, so when you analyze a lot of these lost gospels, even non 
non-Christian etymologists will say there's absolutely no way these books were written by a contemporary of Christ. They had to have been written several hundred years later because they have geographical references, cities that weren't called that until this time. They have all these ideological, philosophical things that weren't invented, all these Gnostic um, theological concepts that didn't exist until, you know, at least such and such a date. And, and really, when you add all of these things up, we, we know with certainty that these books were not written uh, by any contemporary of Christ. And even the early Christians, they knew this, which is why at the Council of Nicaea and some of these other councils around the early 300s, when Christianity first became legalized and, and people started, you know, accepting Christ for a lar- at, at a large level, um, they thought, you know what, this is the first time in history people might get confused we, we, by fake news, okay, by fake gospels. And so we better start just clarifying this for people. And it's kind of like this, okay? Uh, let me give you another metaphor, okay? Imagine if somebody came up to you and said, oh my gosh, check out this documentary film on disco dancing from the 1920s. It even has video clips of people disco dancing back in 1920. Now you'd immediately say, well, that's fake because disco didn't exist in the 1920s. That was a 1970s thing and neither did video technology, right? So, you know, like, I mean, there was no way that there was color video footage of John Travolta dancing in 1920. John Travolta didn't even exist until the, you know, like whenever in the 1960s or 70s, right? So now imagine if somebody made that claim 150 years from now, you know, people even 150 years from now probably would have enough information accessible to them to say, well, that's ridiculous. I think we all know that was not, you know, in fact true. But if you just add enough years, add 2000 years, you remove people from a lot of those historical details, it can get confusing when you add historical layers. Well, so you could imagine by, by the Council of Nicaea, which was not too long after, okay, they decided let's, let's start officially recognizing things they had Christians from all over the world at that time saying, yeah, none of us even, you know, it was, it was pretty clear to them. And they didn't even choose the books of the Bible as much as they merely acknowledged the books that early Christians had already been dying for, for the last several decades, they, what they already knew to be authentic. Okay. So they, they got around at this, this council and in church history, you have to understand before 325 AD, we have these writings, what we call the early church Fathers, okay, the early church fathers. Have you ever heard of that? Or sometimes they're referred to the Antonicene fathers. In other words, the, the Christians. It's a it's a name to describe the disciples of the disciples. Okay, so let me give you an example. Okay, and it's actually really really cool in history to study the, the early church fathers. Uh, for example, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who lived alongside Jesus, he discipled a guy by the name of Polycarp, okay, which is a pretty awesome name for those of you who are pregnant and thinking about names, Polycarp. Um, so, so John discipled Polycarp and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, okay? So, and what's cool about Polycarp and Irenaeus is they wrote all sorts of things about what the apostle John taught them. And so if you wanna know what the, the apostle John taught about heaven, hell, um, you name it outside of his books that he already wrote, all you have to do is read Polycarp and Irenaeus. And they say, 
well, John taught us blah. And our church that John planted taught us blah, 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 blah. In other words, the writings of the early church fathers are some of the best commentary that we have on scripture. In fact, I own entire encyclopedias of topically what all of the early church fathers were taught by the apostles, okay? So now, after Christianity became legal and it started spreading like wildfire, it was the first time in, in church history where false doctrine could actually become a real issue because up until that point, you know what, you would die for your faith. So people were accepting it at a very slow rate, right? But, uh, and, and so here's the, the, the issue about the, the, the gospels even before that. Keep in mind, there were not a whole lot of Christian books before 325. Why? Because they were extremely expensive. If you had to translate a book by hand on parchment paper, that was extremely expensive. And so individual people generally didn't own books. You owned them collectively as a synagogue or as a church, okay? You all went on into it like 100 people all buying one copy, and then you all came to church and read them. So these were extremely expensive. And so there's not a whole lot of books. It's not like nowadays where, you know, everybody has written a book. You know what I'm saying? Like, so second of all, possession of a Christian book carried a capital offense. In other words, you were put to death if you were found owning a Christian book. And so let me tell you something. You're not going to risk burning on a cross for a false book that was not even written by the actual apostles, okay? Unless you were like a cult group and you just wanted to create your own agenda, okay? Third reason why we can trust the Bible is the only reason why these early councils felt the need to clarify the canon, the, the specific number of books. It was because this is the first time in church history where somebody might get confused by fake gospels. And so at, the council, at these councils, they, they finally asked the question, well, what did the early church fathers say about these books of the Bible? Well, um, one of them said, Irenaeus said, we all know there's only four gospels. And then he would name them. And so, and, and like they would go through the other early church fathers. Well, Polycarp said this, uh, Justin Martyr said this. They would go through all the other people. Origen said this. And so listen, when people claim that there's false gospels or lost gospels, I mean, and, or conspiracies to eliminate books of the Bible, just let me just tell you something. It's fake news, okay? You need to know all they're really trying to say is this. You shouldn't trust the Bible because I don't like what it says. They're not actually sharing historical facts. They're sharing editorial opinions that are not in fact true. And I'm saying this is because even if you got non-Christian scholars together and asked them to give, give true historical facts, the vast majority of them would agree that it was not a conspiracy. It was an acknowledgement of what everybody already knew. Okay, so, um, the, and, and here's the deal. The reason why I'm sharing this is because I believe that you can trust scripture and these historical facts are true whether or not you like what it says. Okay, and it's okay to not like what the Bible says. Um, I've had that happen to me many, many times. I'm not asking you to like what the Bible says, but at the very least, I believe that you can say the historical foundations of the Bible are true and how we got it today is in fact based on really sound logic. And as one last example, I, I, I had a while back, I had this one atheist friend <clears throat> who would always come to me and say, yeah, but Peter, come on. I mean, the Bible is still probably watered down and filled with all sorts of bad theology. And, <clears throat> you know, like the medieval monks, when, when they were transcribing it by hand, I, I heard that they added all sorts of opinions. And, and, and in other words, the skeptics claim 
that when um, the ancient Christians had to hand copy the original Greek and Hebrew text, they made thousands of transcription and translation errors. They changed words, they added theology. And so let's actually end with that, okay? Um, how accurate are the Greek and Hebrew texts that we get the Bible from? Now, if you didn't know, uh, the Bible's translated out of out of Hebrew in the Old Testament and some Aramaic. And, and it was also translated out of um, Greek, okay? Particularly Koine Greek, um, which is what they spoke in the, the New Testament, okay? So um, how, how do we know they aren't filled with transcription errors or translation errors? Well, there's a million scholars that, that specialize in this. Many of you guys know that back when I went to the University of Minnesota, I had the privilege of learning Greek and Hebrew. Some people, they, they sign up for practical languages, things like Spanish, but of course, I made the decision to choose Hebrew, which was the dumbest decision I ever made. And, you know, people ask me, if it does it really help you? Not much. Okay. Uh, but I, I just, what I did learn is I did learn a lot about textual criticism and translation. In fact, here are some interesting stats, okay, about the New Testament. Uh, did you know that there are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament? that have been discovered, archeologists have unearthed a whole bunch of them, 24,000. That is more than any ancient book in all of history. 24,000 manuscripts exist of the New Testament alone. And, and scholars can even date some of these manuscripts all the way back to first century AD from when the apostles were still alive. It is totally plausible that the apostles could have actually read from some of the very manuscripts we now possess in museums, okay? And there are people, scholars, who've made a career of organizing all 24,000 manuscripts into a family tree. Which ones are the oldest? Which ones were copied from which, okay? They've literally made a family tree by comparing letter for letter, which, oh, like these certain, uh, you know, transcription errors, where do they, oh, they all came back to that one particular one. And they can, tr they can create family trees of Transcripts, and you thought your job was boring. <laughs> oh my gosh, okay? Because these guys have set thousands, and there's entire debates on whether or not parchment 15,334 was actually parchment 15,331. Okay, and they did it by comparing letter for letter, going through all of this and carbon dating and, and get this, okay? If you set all of these parchments side by side, 24,000 of them, and, and compare them letter to letter of all of these handwritten manuscripts, get this, only one half of 1% have any variations whatsoever. And of these 0.5% of these variations, most of those variations are simple spelling errors, none of which obscure the meaning of the text, okay? Seriously, I mean, we can all understand spelling errors. Uh, and even more important, none of our primary doctrines in Christianity rest on any of those debated sections. In fact, every major Christian doctrine can really be based on, on multiple proof texts that come from multiple books uh, upon which we know there is a lot of reliability from the Trinity to the doctrines of hell. And don't get me wrong, all, all the doctrine cults will tell you, oh, 
no, I'm not so sure. But if you peel back the layers of the onion, there's a lot of foundation to this. In fact, I cannot tell you how many times I've had people come up to me over the years and say, well, Pastor Peter, how can you say that? Because there's only five references to hell in the New Testament. No, there are 162. Read your Bibles. You know what I'm saying? And yet that doesn't stop cults from making claims because most people don't have the information to even back up the claim. Most people don't even know enough about Greek and Hebrew to even say, I call your foul. That's a bunch of baloney. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and people have done this over the years, time and time again. And even, listen, even if you don't believe the Bible, go to the early church fathers. They explain what the apostles taught them. And so if somebody says that doesn't exist in the Bible, well, all you got to do is go to Irenaeus and read. And Irenaeus will say, well, this is what John taught us about what he said. And so basically it removes a whole lot of the debate and the ambiguity. And most people don't realize the information's out there. You just got to study it. But because a lot of people don't study it, people can make claims that just don't stack up with the scholarly foundations of the New Testament. And maybe you're here and you're like, man, okay, this is really kind of deep, Pastor Peter. Why are you telling me all of this? Why? Because you need to know this book is reliable. It's reliable. And even more, what good is this intellectual foundation if none of us even reads it anyway? I mean, come on. People died to bring us this book. We are, are Christians who live with more access to more Bible, Bible information than any generation of Christians who have ever walked the face of the earth. But is it necessarily changing us? No, because we're not necessarily ingesting it, internalizing it. And, and what a pity it would be if we would be those Christians with access to more Bible insight than any generation before, if we set, let that sit on our shelves gathering dust. Besides, the power of this book doesn't merely rest in the words. It rests when we mix those words with our faith, when we find the promises that pertain to our circumstances and we trust in God. That's what heals the sick. That's what raises the dead. That's what brings deliverance. And I don't know where you're at today or where you need deliverance, where you need freedom, where you need power, but I can tell you this, for every need I've ever had in my life, there is a promise in God's word for that need. And when we understand that and apply it to our hearts and mix it with faith, that's where the supernatural happens. That's where Christianity moves from an ideology to an invasion of spiritual power. And that's what I believe God wants you to experience today. I, I, think about, I think about Joshua chapter one, verse eight, and it's right before God's people were about to enter the promised land. And God made a statement to Joshua that he wanted Joshua to understand and all the people, including our generation to understand. And he said this, he said, Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. And he's speaking of the Bible as they had it in those days. They called it the book of the law. He says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, God said, then you will be prosperous and successful. Think about those two words, prosperous 
and successful, then God says to Joshua, God says to us, then you will be prosperous and successful. Man, I don't know about you, but what does the word prosperous mean? What does the word successful mean? If somebody was to say your marriage is prosperous and successful, what would that look like? If your kids are prosperous and successful, what would your bank account look like? What would your emotional life look like? What would your physical body look like? Listen, when do those things happen? When we meditate on God's word day and night. In other words, we just internalize it. One of the best things I ever did over the last 24 years is I've made an effort to memorize about two Bible passages a week. And uh, at first I was not good at, at Bible memorization. I would just read my Bible, anything I would underline throughout the week, I'd go back at the end of the week and I'd pick my two favorites. And sometimes it was my favorite because it was devotional. Other times it was just like an interesting doctrinal point and I would memorize it. And, um, and let me just be honest with you, there were a lot of weeks I was not in the mood and I would memorize it out of mere discipline, not because I liked it or even that I enjoyed it. But let me tell you something, it got in there and it was the difference maker. Cause when it's in there, I'll tell you, the Bible says it's living and active. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart when you get it in there. Whether you feel like it or not, it'll eventually rise up at the proper time and do what it needs to do. And that's exactly what would happen. There were these days where I'd just be so depressed and I'd be like, life, the struggle is real. You know what I'm saying? And I'd just be like, Lord, like what is going on? And then all of a sudden God would bring a scripture to my heart that I totally forgot that I even knew. It's amazing how many times that would happen to me. And then I would just sit and I would meditate on it until all of a sudden joy would be back in my heart. And it wasn't a circumstantial joy. It was a supernatural joy. And how does that joy come? It comes through meditating on God's word. In fact, at all of our substance campuses today, we're actually gonna end with a song called Hanging that I wrote on one of my darkest days. I was just, I was just depressed and I just started meditating on God's word and I started writing music. That's kind of what I do to, to just connect with the Lord. I love to just to worship God through songwriting and, and, and you're, you're actually going to sing it today, but I, I, I want you, even as you're singing it, to be understanding that, that where does the power come from? It, it comes through just allowing God's word to really sink into our souls. And, and I, I just, you know, uh, many of you guys know right here at Substance this coming week, we're going to be launching our, our, our Monterey, Mexico campus. It's exciting. We're, we're launching a West Side campus doing preview services, but we're doing, going to Monterey. And of course, I've been trying to um, memorize a whole lot of Spanish, which is really difficult for me because I always default to Hebrew and nobody even speaks that in. And it's really frustrating. Why did I ever do that? Anyway, uh, but the, the hotel, last time I was at this hotel, I was, there's a Starbucks near the hotel that we stay at. And of course, you know, last time I was at the Starbucks in Mexico, I was trying to figure out how to order whip on my, whipped cream on my mocha, my iced mocha. And of course, you know, like I couldn't do it. And of course they couldn't understand it. And I'm like, I'm trying to like whip, whip, whip. Whip. And then I had to make the sound effect. You know what I'm saying? And now, now I know I like, quiero crema batida. Mucho, mucho, mucho crema batida. And mi corazón. And mi estomaco. You know what I'm saying? Like now, now I got this, okay? You memorize the words that are most important, right? Uh, you know, Biblia and su casa. Crema batida and su corazón. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, but here's, here's how, if you don't know any other languages, here's kind of how it works. The more vocabulary words you memorize, the more you can speak it, right? The more vocabulary words you memorize, the more confident, the more you can hear it, the more you can speak it. Well, guess what? 
the prophetic voice of God works in a similar way, except when you learn God's word, you are learning the vocabulary through which God can speak to you. Okay, in other words, the more Bible verses you memorize, that you put into your heart, it's like you're creating the vocabulary through which the Spirit of God can speak to you and through you for other people. For example, okay, a lot of times, I, you know, like when we talk about the prophetic voice of God, a lot of people, it sounds really spooky. Like, what do you mean? Like, you hear an audible voice? No, it's not an audible voice, but it's a really strong impression that just comes upon you. And, and, and people ask me, well, how do you know that the prophetic is not just a random thought in your overactive imagination? And actually, the truth is, I don't know, but that's the, what you do is you judge those thoughts in accordance with God's word. And so that's why a lot of times the way that God will speak to me is through Bible references. It'll just be like this. I'll just be praying for someone and the Lord will just say, Peter, go share James 4, 7 with that individual. And I'll be like, is that a thought in my head or is that you, Lord? And, and I don't know, but I'm just going to obey. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to be like, hey, the Lord just told me um, James 4, 7 is the scripture verse he wants you to remind you of. And then all of a sudden, they like burst into tears. Oh my gosh, I was just reading that verse this morning. And I was like, God, are you real? Are you real? If you're real, share that verse with me. And then boom, you came up to me. Okay, listen. And then, and then you know, I'm like, wow, that's really crazy. You know, like I cannot tell you how many times that exact story has played out in my life. I cannot tell you how many times I've had that happen. And, and, and so the reason why I'm sharing that is because the prophetic is not about a supernatural feeling. It's about faith. But I believe that the more you memorize God's word, it becomes that vocabulary that God can not only use to encourage you on your down days, to speak to you on your days, but to speak to other people through you. And it's kind of a safeguard, safeguarded way of, of learning how to walk in the prophetic and learning how to hear the voice of the Lord. And, 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 and I, I'm saying that is because I really believe that there's some of you here today where God wants this year to be your greatest year. But you're missing that one little divine insight that's going to tip you into that amazing marriage that God wants you to have. And it, it kind of reminds me, and I'm going to end with this, my, my favorite story uh, of a famous British preacher. There was a, a British preacher back in the late 1800s called, named Charles Spurgeon. And, and uh, he, he, he kind of was known as like the first megachurch pastor of the English-speaking world. And, and there was this poor woman in his church who lived in the ghettos of East London. And this, this parishioner in his church was sick to the point of being on her deathbed. And of course, Spurgeon was going to go and, and pray with her, kind of do this last little moment with her before she went to be with the Lord. And so he went to minister to her. And while he was in her, her little shack of a house, he was sitting by her bedside and he was looking at some of the decorations around her room. And this one thing on the wall caught his attention and he started looking at it. And he's like, what is this? It looked like a little handwritten note framed on her wall and he's looking at it. And immediately she saw him look at this and she was like, oh, there's a cool backstory to that, that, that little note. I used to work for an extremely wealthy woman in London and I, I took care of her house for many, many, many years. And, and right before she died, she wrote out this note for me and and, and honestly, I've never read it before because I don't know how to read, but I, I held on to it because it, it just brings back all sorts of happy memories of, of my time living with her. And, and of course, Spurgeon was shocked. He's like, you literally never read this before? Like, woman, do you realize what this is? He goes, that piece of paper on your wall is a check. She wrote you out a check. 
That piece of paper is an inheritance she wrote out for you that makes you one of the wealthiest women in London. And yet she's sitting there in poverty on her deathbed because she didn't know how to read. In church, when I heard that story, I thought, wow, that is the perfect metaphor for how a lot of Christians live. God's word is filled with all sorts of amazing promises. It's an inheritance letter of sorts that when we read it, we realize what we are entitled to as sons and daughters of the most high God. When we read it, we read what Christ paid the price on the cross for us to purchase for us the inheritance that Christ left for us when he rode from the dead. But for a lot of us, We don't know what that is because we haven't read it. We don't know how to get into it. And we end up missing out on some of the greatest provision that God has already bought for us. And so church, listen, I don't know wherever you're at in your relationship with the Lord, but I want to encourage you, just start dabbling with the Bible. Just start reading it. Even if it was just a small amount, I always tell people, if you're not consistent in Bible reading, this is what I, this is what I tell people. Just read your Bible for two minutes a day for two months. And some of you, you know, like long-term Christians are like, how is anybody going to get two minutes, uh, get anything out of the Bible only reading it for two minutes? Well, I didn't say you're going to get anything out of it. I just want you to read it for two minutes. Just, just because in order to, you can't improve a habit that you don't have. Okay. And let me say that again. You can't improve on a habit that you don't already have. You got to establish it before you improve it. Okay. So you got to establish the habit for two months, just two minutes a day for two months and you'll get hooked on it. It'll become a habit and then move it from two minutes to five minutes for another two months. And then you'll really get into it. And then, then do it just 10 minutes a day. Listen, if you read your Bible for 10 minutes a day, you would read through your entire Bible almost every single year or at the very least every two, year for, two years for those of you who are slow readers, okay? Uh, but I, I just, again, just dabble with it. If you don't know where to start, ask a Christian friend. Start with one of those short little New Testament books, Jude. Boom, you're done in like five minutes, right? Read the book of James, First Peter. Read the book of Luke. It's a simple little gospel about Christ. And then read the book of Acts. It's the sequel, okay? It's really, really fun. These books are power filled. But listen, there will come a point where Bible reading will get easier and easier and easier. And even those like parts of my Bible where the pages still kind of stick together, you know what I'm saying? Those ones, like I'm telling you, even the toughest scriptures, those become actually fun after a while. And it may take a while before you get to there. But I really do believe that it just starts with the first step. And I I wanna encourage you just wherever you're at, use that word because there's power in it. And so just right here today, let's just just end with a simple little prayer. I'm gonna pray that God will give you an increased hunger for his word. And maybe you're here and you're like, you're, you're like, I don't even know if I believe in this whole God thing. Listen, then this is what I'm gonna pray for you. Then I'm gonna pray that God would reveal himself to you in a more powerful way. And if that's something that you're even remotely open to, then just close your eyes with me and let me just pray for you, okay? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every person watching this or listening to the sound of my voice. I pray that wherever they're at with all of their doubts and their skepticisms, I pray that you would just bid them to come and and, and just explore this thing called faith on a deeper level. And God, I know that you're a God who loves to reveal yourself And I know that you're a God who loves to give us desires for your word and to apply your word. And I pray that you give every single person here an insatiable desire to read about you and your word. And church, if you're agreeing with what I'm praying, then just say this after me. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me 
renew me and lead me starting today and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.